You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Focal passage is in Hosea chapter 11. Verses 1 through 11, invite you to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have one, uh, we'd love to give you one. You can stop by the Connect desk this morning. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screens. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender, and I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, he will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes declares the Lord. This is God's word. You can now have a seat and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us today. My name is Matt Tucker, one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege for me to, uh, to preach this morning. We're going to continue in Hosea. I'm going to find where we are real quick, and then I will pray for us. There we go. Let me pray for us, and then we will jump into God's word today. God, thanks for your goodness to us. Thanks for your word. Thanks for this opportunity. And God, I pray that you would give us um, an excitement about Hosea. Even though some of the stuff in here is challenging, God, that, that you would open our eyes and hearts to respond to however you are leading us this morning. God, by your grace, let me be helpful to our church and say only things that are true And God, I pray that as we leave here, as a result of this time, we might love you more, be more thankful for your commitment to us and the ways you forgive us and the ways you stay true to us. God, thanks for this church. Thanks for this opportunity. We look to you and pray that your word would speak to us and we pray this in your name. Amen. Isn't it funny sometimes how two people can look at the same scenario and yet come to such very different conclusions? A long time ago, probably 20 years ago, I was in college. I was living at my parents' house. I was out late one night coming back to their house, and it was about midnight, and typically the front door is unlocked. This time it wasn't. So like any rational person around midnight, I go to the back of the house. I find where, you know, go to the, um, 
go to the deck and I stack up some chairs and then I climb out on this ledge about 15 feet high right below my brother's window and it's like about a one foot ledge that's slanted and so at midnight at dark in the back of my house I'm hanging on like this 15 feet up to my brother's window pane knocking on it hoping that he like hears and lets me in. The conclusion I come to is that like he'll wake up and that he'll see me, we'll laugh about this, think it's hilarious, and then he'll let me in and I'll go to bed. The conclusion he comes to, he wakes up, obviously it's midnight, he freaks out because something's rapping on his second story window. He gets my parents and he grabs his BB gun. <laughs> and so it didn't go how I thought. He's also not a bad shot. About a year before this, a bird got into our house and he shot at it. He actually got the bird, but he also blew out the window panes on my parents' back door. And so it's no joke that he got his BB gun. We both saw the same scenario play out from either side of that window pane I was clinging onto, but each of us came to very different conclusions about what was happening in that moment. In our focal passage today, God and Israel look at commitment, and they come to two very different conclusions as well. God wants to have a relationship with his people, and he's committed to them, but Israel doesn't view things the same way. And throughout our text today, we're going to see how God, in many different ways, demonstrates his commitment to his people. And this passage, um, Hosea 11, 1 through 11, also gives us a full and beautiful picture about God. We see his justice, as we've been seeing for all, all through Hosea. We see his tenderness, though, in a way that shines through in this passage, as Adam read like no other. We see his commitment. We see his love and care. And it's a beautiful way to see kind of the fuller picture of God today. If you're new here, if you haven't joined with us for a while, we're continuing on in Hosea. Um, it's called Divine Pursuit. We've been looking at um, the book of Hosea for multiple weeks, and I want to remind us of one thing. As we've been going through, we're on week, week 10 or 11, it's so easy to for forget what's really happening. We've been talking about judgment. We've been talking about, you know, grace and these other things. And I just want to read something for us that might be helpful to get us back on track with what's happening. This is in the commentary, and it's like just four sentences, and I think this will be helpful. Hosea depicts Israel's unfaithfulness with a number of images from family and nature. Israel is like a promiscuous wife, an indifferent mother, an illegitimate child, an ungrateful son, a stubborn heifer, a silly dove, a luxuriant vine, and grapes in the wilderness. Yet, Israel's unfaithfulness and obstinacy are not enough to exhaust God's redeeming love that outstrips the human capacity to comprehend it. That's where we find ourselves today. Despite all that Israel does, despite the lack of commitment to God, despite turning to idols, despite all those things, God continues to be faithful to his people. So today we're gonna to look at Hosea 11, one through 11. We're gonna see how strong God's commitment is to his people, even in the face of their rejection. And this is why this focal passage is so important this morning. Like Israel, many of us live as if we want God to remain in the friend zone where little or no commitment is expected from us at all. We want to have access to God, but we don't want to change anything or we want to commit to him. Or we might say it like this, it's nice to have God around when I need him, but I don't want him to tell me what to do or I don't want to have to live like, like a life a certain way. So here's the question I want each of us to consider before we jump into the text this morning. How do you view God's commitment to you? How do you view God's commitment to you? Is it something you need and want and desire? Or is it like maybe closer to a ball and chain? 
It's what I want you to think about this morning. Our, our uh, main idea as we get into this is this. We can be restored to God because his commitment to us is stronger than our rejection of him. We can be restored to God because his commitment to us is stronger than our rejection of him. So if you're taking notes, point one is this. God's commitment has a call. I'm going to read again verses one through four. So you're welcome to join me. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. That's what God says. So what we see here first is that God calls to Israel, right? He calls them out of captivity in Egypt, and he calls them into a relationship with him. God's call to Egypt is not to slave labor. It's not um, like a, um, you know, a sergeant general barking military orders. And it's not only just like a friend calling out saying, let's hang out. God's call is to him, to enjoy him and to be under his care. And in this first section, God's commitment to Israel looks like a caring father, right? It gives us tons of detail on how God took care of them, how he was gentle with them, how he brought them up, how he kind of helped them to walk. And you, you get the picture like Israel's like a two-year-old and God is very gracious and kind and walks alongside them. He's shown as a dad that nurtures his children with compassion and gentleness and patience. And God is shown as the one who loved Israel when Israel was needy and not really able to offer anything in return to God for all he'd done for them. So what's Israel's response to all that God had done? Israel rejects God. We kind of knew that was coming, right? We read the focal passage. It says multiple times that that happened. Israel received all the benefits of God. And in return, they kind of say, no thanks to God for that. And in this no thanks, it's not just a rejection of the stuff God gave them, but it's also a rejection of God himself. By rejecting God, Israel said that God wasn't enough and that they could find better elsewhere. Israel wanted out of the relationship with God, his commitment to them, and the way of living that God invited them into. And you can imagine, maybe if you're a parent, or even if you're not, you can probably imagine this. Say, you know, a child comes to you, your child, and says, I don't really think you're what's best for me anymore. I'm gonna go elsewhere, I'm gonna look for you know, parenting somewhere else and I, I don't want to be with you anymore. And, and you can imagine that would probably just rip your heart out. And that's what happened to God as well. Israel says that to God basically, I don't need you anymore, I don't wanna be around you, I'm done with you, we're not doing this. And God called his people and he called them to come back multiple times, it says over here, the more he called them, the more they went away. Israel would come to the conclusion that God's call and commitment was more like captivity to be escaped from than, than a blessing and a joy. And so church for us, the call of God is to enjoy him as the source of all we could ever want or need. It's not to see him as rules. It's not to see him as this thing that we should do. It's to enjoy him and to see him as a God who cares for us like this father did. His call is to come and really live and to call to abundant life. When God calls anyone, when he calls to one of us, when he calls to Israel, it's not to see like how this could go. Let's test things out. It's to a commitment for the long haul. It's not a trial run. It's not to an open relationship. Like when uh, a man or a woman, when they date, they get together and they say, we're gonna get married, it's to forsake all others, right? It's a joy to be committed to one another. And that's what God's inviting Israel into as well. God's call is to enjoy him and his commitment so much that you have no desire to look towards anything else for your satisfaction. 
Early on in this passage, we talk about Gomer and Hosea, and Gomer is kind of the prostitute that is unfaithful to her husband. Gomer thought she was missing out on a better lover, and that's why she continued to walk away from Hosea. Israel thought the other nations had it better, and that's why they sacrificed to those other nations' idols and gods. And sometimes it looks like the world is living its best life, but hear me, church, no child of God is missing out on anything. No child of God is missing out on anything. God's commitment to us is unlike any other. There's nothing out there that could satisfy us more. There's nothing else that we could turn to to be more secure and to have a loving father like our God. The call of God requires a response as well, right? It, it, it calls us to enjoy him as the source of like everything we would want and need and also calls us to a response, right? When God calls, we, we can't remain neutral. Israel can't remain neutral. There, we either say, yes, we're in or no, we're not. In a new dating relationship, again, you gotta make a decision, right? At some point, you gotta say, we're gonna do this together or this isn't gonna work. In the same way with God, we either respond to God's call and we embrace his commitment as his people or we reject God's call because we think his commitments is more like a handcuff, more like captivity or a ball and chain. Israel saw commitment with God as that handcuff to how they wanted to live and they rejected the Lord after all he had done for them. They forgot all that God had done. They chose to sacrifice to the Baals, believing that those idols could offer them something that God couldn't. Some of us might just hear, just not commit, right? Maybe that seems easier. Like, I'm not gonna reject God, but I'm not gonna fully commit to him. And so we kind of like just don't commit to God. And if that's you this morning, that's the same as rejecting God. This way of thinking might seem like a safe, neutral position, but not committing to God is the same as rejecting God. Believing that there is something better out there is a lie from Satan that Adam and Eve continues to feed, or that um, Adam and Eve believed and that Satan continues to feed us today. God's call is not to give up all the fun. God's call is not to, to kind of say, well, I'm just gonna endure. God's call is to life and to freedom and to a joy and to relationship with him. He invites you to respond to his call and see him as the thing that we always have wanted all along. So if you struggle today with God's commitment um, because you think like maybe something out there looks better, right? What I want you to know, and, and I say this to myself and to us, is that you probably don't know God very well. And I say that humbly, I say it to myself, right? If, if it, the world looks like it's having more fun, if you're saying, well, I'm gonna do the church thing and I'm gonna read my Bible and I'm gonna, I guess I'm gonna pray because that's what good Christians do, then you don't know God. If God were right here in all of his glory, if we could see him face to face, he would be so amazing. He would be so satisfying and so captivating that any obsession with any other thing would just pale in comparison because of how awesome he is. And what I want you to know this morning is sometimes when we don't view God with joy and we don't see the relationship as life-giving, there's probably a miss on who we think God is or what we think God does. So, is there an area of your life that you believe you could enjoy more apart from God? Well, I'm a Christian, so I, I probably can't do that. Or maybe you want to do something that's probably not under God's laws, but you're kind of fearful of like the thing like that. And you're kind of like, well, I shouldn't do that because I'm a Christian. I don't want God to get angry at me, so I'm not doing that. If that's you, if that's me, then what we're doing is we're missing out on God's laws, seeing them as life, and we're viewing our relationship with him as a captivity. And to combat this, I ask you this question, how are you seeking God this morning? How are you seeking to know him more? 
the more you know God, you will see how amazing he is and the lengths at which he went to rescue you, to maintain his commitment to you and to be with you. The more you know God, the more you will joyfully embrace his call and commitment to you. That's point number one, God's commitment has a call. Point number two is this, God's commitment has consequences. I'm gonna read five through seven, it might be on the screen, but if not, you're welcome to turn there as well. This is Hosea 11, five through seven. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars in their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So it doesn't go well for Israel, right? Part of God's commitment to Israel is that he won't just let them go off and reject him and do their own thing. Part of God's commitment to Israel is that there will be consequences for their action to bring them back to himself. And since Israel refused to return to God, God sent them into captivity. One of the commentaries I read this week says this, because Israel refused to repent, the deliverance of the Exodus will be reversed. This is what God brought them out of. He brought them, they were in Exodus. God rescues them. They go out to the desert. He says, let's be a people, right? I will be your God. You will be my people. It will look like this and it will be great. And then God's people kind of say, after a while, yeah, we're good. You know, thanks, no thanks. And so one of the, um, so in captivity to, to Syria is the consequence for their rejection. In verse six, there are three descriptive words that God uses to describe the climate in Israel. And we've just read it, but I just want to point them out again. It's rage, consume, and devour. And like, I don't know about you, but those don't seem like things I would want as a part of my household. Or if I had a city, I wouldn't like claim those as like my like big themes. If I were having a city, if you were having a city, you might pick words like fun or exciting or, or safe and not rage and consume and devour. And so that's not great. So, so we ask the question, why is that? Hosea tells us in verse six, um, it says this, um, Israel turned from placing their faith in God to placing their faith in their counsel. Or, or themselves, right? It talks about their, their gates and their cities and their council and, and their government. And Israel turns to that because it's, it's set up, it's, it's healthy. And yet when they rely on those things, things don't go well. And the cities and the gates and the government were not enough when Assyria decided to come. So then they call it to the most high. They kind of like reach out to God. They're like, hey, yo God, Remember, like, you know, you asked for this thing, and we were kind of cool, and then we weren't, and then, like, there's some bad stuff happening now, and so I kind of need you. We do that once in a while, right, too. Like, we kind of, like, live without God for a while, and then something really crazy happens, and we're like, you know, we talk to God and see what's going on, kind of check in. The Israelite people consistently rejected God and his commitment to them, but when life spun out of control, all of a sudden, God's a thing again, and that happens for us as well. It's kind of crazy how that works out. This kind of has the feel of like continuing to refuse someone who wants to go on a date with you. And then at some point you like ask them to clean your bathroom. It's like, it's probably not gonna work, right? You know, thanks, but no thanks. Like, you know, I, I don't really think you like me very much sort of thing, right? It's, it's not gonna work. And God is not fooled by this. He's not dumb, right? Israel calls out to God, not because they wanted God, but because all of a sudden they have a need for God. It wasn't because they were sorry for rejecting him, and it wasn't because they now saw how good he was or wanted a relationship with him. God obviously knows this, and he did not raise them up at all. He's not going to help Israel live in a way that is not good for them because his call and commitment to them would not allow it. 
So this is what we know. Our rejection of God leads us to captivity as well in the same way it led Israel to their captivity. Israel believed the lie that they could pursue the gods and ways of other nations while avoiding the consequences of living like those nations. You are not under control, right? If, if we get out of under the care of God, we believe the lie that we can maybe be in control of ourselves and manage some of the other things that we connect with. But that's not true at all. In Israel's rejection of God, Israel became captive to their sin. And because of that, God allowed them to become captive to Israel or to Assyria. There's a constant pattern that we see throughout all of scripture. And I think it, it hits on, on us today. And it's this, God calls to his people. And God invites his people into a relationship. Then God's people, believing better is out there, they turn from God, right? And so God sends his people into captivity as a punishment for their hearts being in captivity to sin. But by God's grace, that's not the last step in the process. God then reaches out to his people after correction and he restores their relationship by his grace. And church, we are still prone to falling into this pattern today as well, right? We know what God says. We know what his word says. We read who he is and that he wants to, to have a relationship with us. He wants it to look a certain way. And maybe for a while we're in and we're saying, man, this is good. I love this. But isn't it hard over time to continue to enjoy God sometimes? And maybe I'm speaking for myself. Maybe this is not you, but sometimes it's hard when life gets busy to want to read our Bibles, to want to pray to God, to want to connect and to serve in ways that we do. And it's easy to get stale and to just kind of put God as a thing over here and not the main thing. God calls out to us saying, I am God. I'm the best. Enjoy me. And he invites you and me to have a relationship and to enjoy his commitment to us. But so often we think about God in the same way that Gomer thought about her husband. I think there's something better out there. That person over there looks great. Looks like they're having a good time. Man, I wonder what that's like. In her mind, and maybe in ours, God's commitment to us is more of a restrictive fence keeping us in than a fulfilling relationship freeing us to enjoy that person. When we give ourselves to anything other than God, that thing becomes our Assyria and, and takes, um, sorry, and that takes us to our second point as well, and that's this. Living for anything other than God has a real life consequences. That's kind of point two, or B under point two. Living for anything other than God has real life consequences. It did for Israel and it does for us as well. I've said it before and I want us to say it again. I'll say it again. God is the source of all good, right? You know, as we've preached this a thousand times, the Bible declares that he is the source of all good. So if we as his people or Israel reject him, how would we think that we would find those qualities outside of God, right? That doesn't make any sense. If you turn off a light switch in a room, would we expect to find light another way? No, you've cut the power, you've turned it off. There's no light. And in the same way, when we say, God, I don't need that. I'm not wanting to live in that way. We kind of, and then we expect to live life and it goes well. It's just not gonna happen. It's, it's, it's not logical. Living for anything other than God creates a real divide between you and all that he is. And God tells Israel in verse seven, though they call out to me, I will not raise them up at all. Captivity is the consequence to pursuing a life outside of Christ. But because of his commitment to you, he won't put up with your sin, he won't let you remain in it, and he won't stand idly by as you or I reject him. God can and he will free us from captivity and use that to restore our hearts back to him. 
So how do you respond when God brings correction or captivity into your life? What, what does our heart want to do with that? Do you view correction as like a loving God keeping you from hurting yourself? Or do you view it as like God interfering again with the plans that you have? How do you think about that? My fear for some of us, for myself sometimes to walk into this, my fear is that we want just enough God to feel safe and we want just enough of the world to feel free and fun, right? Do we want that sometimes? I'm not putting it on you. Consider that with me. Do we want that? Do we want just enough God to feel safe? No, I, me and God, we, we got a thing. I talked to them last week. We're good. But then we want just enough of the world as well to kind of have our fun, to live the way we want to. If we think like this, this is a total miss on understanding what God's commitment is to us. One foot in and one foot out of a marriage is no marriage at all. And a mild rejection of God will have consequences because God will not let his children remain in sin. He will not let them continue to reject him. God's commitment has consequences. That's the end of point number two. So points one and two where God's commitment has a call um, and God's commitment has consequences. And point three is this. God's commitment is compassionate. Praise God for that. This is where things get good, right? We've been talking about a lot of judgment, a lot of captivity, a lot of rejection stuff, and this is where we get some hope, right? Despite Israel's sin and rejection, God affirms his commitment to his people. Verse 8 shows us another side of God that should give us so much hope. God says in verse 8, I won't read the, the text, but I'm just going to pull out some phrases from there. God says, how can I give you up or how can I hand you over? How can I make you like Adma or treat you like Zeboim? Which is just a fun word to say. Those were two cities that like, um, God wiped out with Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. He's like, how can I destroy you completely like I did to those cities? He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Isn't this just life? Like this is like water on dry ground is to hear this. After all of the junk, after all of the sin, after all the rejection, God's like, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is what true commitment looks like, right? In this moment, justice and mercy are both fully present. God is going to act justly. There will be punishment for sin, but with God's justice, there is also mercy and compassion for his people. Israel may have rejected God, but God has not rejected his people. From a human perspective, it doesn't make any sense at all for God to stay in this relationship, right? It doesn't really benefit him. It doesn't make him happy. But in the darkest of moments when divorce might seem like the best option or when it might seem imminent, God remains compassionately committed to his people. Hosea 11, 9, I'm gonna read it for us. God says this, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. That's good news. God tells us that he controls his anger, right? He doesn't deal with us how we should or as a man or a human might. God is angry, but it's a righteous anger at Israel's sin, at the rejection that is taking place, place between them. God, being God, doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't lash out at Israel or he doesn't do something that he will later regret. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. I will not come in wrath. Why? And how is this? This is great. He says, I am a God, not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst. And for me, when I read this, it's like, 
that was the mic drop moment, right? He is God. He's not like us. He is both holy. He will do what is right. And he is in their midst. He is with his people. That balances the compassion and the justice side of God. God remains holy and he remains committed to his people. He doesn't cut off the relationship when his people reject him. He doesn't deal with his people in an uncontrolled rage. And he's not far off saying, if you get your crap together, then I might reconsider. He's not absent or disconnected or abusive. God is not like us. He is holy. And because he is holy, sin will be dealt with. Mercy is shown and the relationship with his people remains intact. That's good news. Church, God's compassion keeps him from turning on us as well. And this shows up in two main ways in point number three. So it's kind of like 3A. First, God's compassion keeps him from turning from his commitment to us. Imagine for a second that God has no compassion. If you are a Christian here, if you've been a part of God's family for a long time, it might be hard to think like this. Like, what if God had no compassion for you? What if there was no forgiveness? What if you had no chance of being made right with God and you were under wrath? What if you were being punished for your sin forever at some point? And what if there's nothing you could say or do to avoid damnation? That's pretty terrifying, right? And we don't often think about that, but like that's a reality for anyone who doesn't know Christ. That would be a literal hell. But I wanna read this for us. This is a passage of scripture that I've loved um, ever since I've been in college and memorized it, but I'll read it for us just to make sure I get it right. It's Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. And this is just beautiful. I want you to rest in this. Um, this is Jeremiah talking. It says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's good news, right? That's, that's our God. When we remain unfaithful sometimes, when we reject God, when we have no desire, we, when we don't see the relationship like he would want us to see it, God remains faithful. His mercy for us is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. Because of God's compassion, his people will not be cut off. You may act like Gomer and I may act like Gomer. All of us at some point will reject God or will put him at a distance, but God will never say to his people, it's over, I can't do this anymore. He will never say that. You will never hear those words come from his mouth. We are not the faithful ones. We don't deserve anything from God, but by his grace, his compassion keeps him from turning on our relationship with him. Part B under point three is this, God's compassion keeps him from turning on us in anger as well. I'm gonna say it again, God is not like us. That was just such a beautiful way to describe it. God's like, I'm not like you. He is perfectly just and he's perfectly compassionate. And he doesn't uphold one of these things at the expense of the other. He's able to hold those equally together for our good and because he's holy. He's not cold and calculated and he's also not driven by his feelings, thank God. If there was ever an excuse for God to lose his cool, it would be when his people he loves the most are unfaithful to him. But even when this does happen, God controls his anger, right? He doesn't lash out at us. He doesn't say, you know, let's, let's do this. If, this might be true like in a, in a being scared scenario, but also I think it's true in an anger scenario. It's kind of like fight or flight. When someone ticks you off or someone sins against you or someone, you know, just rubs you the wrong way, isn't it easy to do the fight or flight thing again where like you're like, okay, we're either doing this when we go at it or just get out of my life. 
That's, that's my response sinfully sometimes. Maybe that's yours, but thankfully that's not God's response to us. God isn't like us, and God is not like the idols we turn to. We, like Israel, turn to idols believing that they will give us what we want. It's kind of an exchange with idols sometimes, right? Like Israel had this, and we probably do this with the idols in our lives, where like we say, hey, if I do like this for you, if I give you this time and energy and effort, or if I sacrifice in this way, I'm gonna expect this from you. That's what Israel did to the idols, and that's sometimes what we do as well. But with idols, there's no relationship. There's no fatherly commitment and care like we saw in verse one. There's no commitment and no compassion from idols. Our God's different. He's not like us because he wants us to think of him relationally. That's why he often describes himself as a father and a husband. Those are endearing terms. Those are gentle terms. Those are committed terms. He won't turn on us in his commitment to us. He will not deal with us in his anger. He is a God. He is God and not a man. He will remain the Holy One in our midst as well. So some application from point number three. Do you know that God's commitment is a display of his compassion for you? When do you when's the last time you thought about God's compassion for you? I know it's not a word we might use often. We might say love or, or commitment or whatever. But when was the last time you thought about God's compassion for you personally? How might you be able to display this compassion to others, knowing that we have this now, knowing that God remains committed to us, knowing that we don't deserve it, and yet he, his mercies are new every morning, how might that change us to view others? How might that change us to live differently as a result of knowing this? Also, how do you respond to others when they reject you or sin against you? It's going to happen. It might have happened this morning. It might happen tomorrow at the store or at work or wherever you go. But I would encourage you to remember how God restrains his anger towards you. Right? We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve the patience that God shows towards us. But remembering that um, God doesn't deal with us in his anger frees us to show that compassion, to show that grace and forgiveness to others as well. God's commitment is compassionate. So at this point, we have looked at three points. God's commitment has a call. We've looked at how rejecting God's commitment has consequences. And we're talking about how God's commitment to us is compassionate. And so here's kind of winding it down just a little bit. To this day, God and his people continue to come to different conclusions about commitment, right? We do as well. I think in our heads, it sounds great and we know that we want it and we know it's a good thing and it's the right thing to want. But so many of us, when it actually comes down to being committed to God and saying we're in, it's just really tough. I think it's because we still have a little bit of Gomer in each of us. We still struggle with adulterous tendencies sometimes. We still have wandering eyes for other lovers. And we have chosen those other lovers over God since the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve were tempted to do that as well. Satan comes in and says, hey, there's this tree over here and it's great and eat the fruit and I wonder what it's like. And Adam and Eve are like, no, we're not gonna eat the fruit. And then he's like, eat the fruit. And they're like, no. And they finally eat the fruit. Why? Because they thought that God was holding out on them. They thought that maybe in, in God's commitment to them, there was something better out there. There was something that he wasn't allowing them to have and they viewed their relationship to him as like this fence, as a, a handcuffed. And we do the same thing. I was finishing the section um, of my notes and, when I, and then I got an alert on my phone that said Tom Brady and his wife were calling it quits on their relationship after 13 years. They were getting a divorce. And Tom Brady, if you don't know him, is a football player. We watched him play Thursday night. Um, so I skimmed the article 
and there's a line from his wife in regards to their divorce, in, in, in regards to their divorce, and it said this. This is her talking about Tom. I feel that everybody has to make a decision that works for them. Tom needs to follow his joy too. Isn't that like brutal? Like that's, that's right here, right? Basically what she's saying is, hey, we all have to make a decision on what we're gonna follow. Tom needs to follow his joy too, and that's, that's not us. That is, that is rough, ouch. Um, Tom has a beautiful family. He has all the money in the world, the career and the fame. And, and some people might look at him and say, say, he has it all. But having it all for Tom is not enough, right? We look at all those things. They, they catch our eye, right? Money, uh, the career, the status, the whatever it is. And we say, man, if only I had those things. If only I could run after those things. And sometimes we do make them our idols. But having it all isn't enough. That's the lie Satan wants us to believe, right? It's if I could get this thing, then I will be happy. If I could be with that person, then whatever. And God's looking at us saying, I've been with you the whole time and I'm the perfect representation of anything you could ever want or need. You can get everything your heart desires, but if it's not Jesus, it will never be enough. I can't fix my own heart. You can't fix yours. But here's the good news from this message today. Our adulterous hearts were conquered once and for all at the cross. Jesus is the one that took the punishment for our adultery while remaining faithful to us. We don't deserve that. He didn't deserve that, but he took our punishment. He remained faithful to the Father. He remained faithful to us. He took our punishment. He committed no sin in doing all of that. Jesus fully committed to doing whatever it took to bring us back to him. And that frees us then to say, my gosh, how good of a God. And that makes us want him all the more. Jesus is the better lover we have been searching for the whole time. I think if any of us would have a list of, of what we want in a God, if we were picking a God, we said, I want this, this, and this, and this. God checks all his boxes, right? He's faithful to us. He's loving, he's compassionate, he's gracious and tender and merciful and just. But for some reason, we just don't see that in him sometimes. And we look to other things for that. He is the one that remains committed to us when we aren't committed to him. He is the one that has seen us at our worst and still desires to be with us. And he is the one that doesn't consume us in his anger when we are unfaithful to him. Church, thanks God for his commitment to us and that it's stronger than our rejection of him. Because of Jesus's commitment to us, we no longer have to live in fear of God's wrath and anger. And because Jesus stayed committed to us when it cost him his life, we know that there's nothing that can separate us now from our relationship with him. I'm gonna read Hosea 11, 10 and 11. We'll kind of wrap this up. This is Hosea 11, 10 and 11. Listen to like the kind of the, the words that God uses here. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Church, Jesus will restore his people. That's our hope this morning, right? When we are not strong enough to remain committed to God, God remains strong enough to hold us to himself, to keep us to him, to give us the desire to pursue him. His perfect life, death, and resurrection secure our relationship with him. And today, he triumphantly and powerfully calls 
to his people again. There was a call in the first part of this section, calling Israel out of Egypt. And there's another call that's much more dynamic, much more powerful, much more victorious and assertive. And the text says, he calls to us like a roaring lion. If you were in the jungle, and this is just really random, but if you're in the jungle and you're like walking through it for some reason and you hear a lion's roar, would not that just be like the most terrifying thing you've ever heard, right? Like you, you wouldn't know where to run and you know that this thing's out there and it is like the most powerful thing against you potentially. There's no uncertainty about what it is, right? A, a roar, it's not like, is that a bird? No, it's like you know what that is. You know what it's capable of and you know the power that this line has and what it can do. And in the same way, our God's roar is a reminder of who he is and what he is capable of for us. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his roar is a wake-up call to us, his people. It's a call to remember that nothing is like him. No success or spouse or sport could ever continue or could ever compare with God's commitment to us. And hearing his roar this morning through his word reminds us that he will be with his people and we will be with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. Because of Jesus' commitment to us, God will restore his people and they shall go after God. Jesus perfectly satisfies all the desires of our hearts this morning, church. And he invites you to believe that his commitment to you is the highest treasure. It is the best thing. And when we believe that, we never have to desire to look elsewhere again. That's our hope. We can be restored to God because his commitment to us is stronger than our rejection of him. We're done just a little early, but um, it's now time to respond and I invite you to do so. You can respond in a couple different ways this morning. My wife and I will be back kind of in that section over there. You can pray right in your seats and, and there's a prayer bench along the wall over there. And we're gonna take communion. And we do this every week. I don't want it to be a same old, same old. And please hear me when we talk about communion. This is where I point you back to Jesus, the one who does perfectly satisfy you. And I want you to see it as this. We will take of the bread. We will enjoy the cup. And those do represent his body and blood that were shed for us. But I want you to see this as the one, as, as we enjoy him who stayed perfectly committed to us, even to the cross. His blood was shed for our unfaithfulness to him. His body was broken because of our rejection of him. And this morning he invites us to take this and remember who he is and what he's done and kind of recommit maybe to that first love. Spend time with him, talk with Jesus, remember him, just rest and maybe say, God, how do you want me to think about you this morning? Ask yourself, there'll be some questions on the screen. Ask, man, how am I not believing that you are the thing that satisfies me the most? If you aren't a Christian this morning, communion is not for you, but we are for you. And I would love to talk with you about how you can have a relationship with this God this morning. So check out the questions on the screen. Take some time. And then uh, you are welcome to join us with the band. The band can come on up and I'm going to pray for us. And then we will look at the questions, take communion and sing with the band. God, thanks for your commitment to us. I pray that we would not leave here taking it for granted. God, there's nothing we could do to, to woo you back to us. There's no way we could repay our rejection of you. And yet in your goodness, you remain committed to us. 
The Bible says when there is nothing beautiful about us, when we were enemies of God, God reaches out and he calls us. And by his grace, he keeps us. Now let us rest in that today. Let that be our hope. Let that be the thing that we remember when we are tempted to search elsewhere for satisfaction and joy. God, wash us and forgive us when and if we do that. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for your love. Thanks for this time. Please work in our hearts. Speak to us. Let us hear from you and connect with you. God, as we consider prayer, God, I pray that we would take advantage of the options with the prayer team, for me and the prayer bench. We pray this in your good name. Amen.